0: I hope that parents, if they like this book, will say, all right, instead of fretting about teaching my kid to learn Python and JavaScript and do digital coding, I'm gonna make them learn that, but I also want to inspire them to do the code of life because there's a joy in understanding how something works, especially when that something is ourselves.
1: Biographer and historian Walter Isaacson joins us on this episode of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast to discuss his new book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and The Future of the Human Race. We'll talk with Walter Isaacson about the implications of the life sciences revolution, the promise and peril of gene editing, the role of Seattle and other regional biotech hubs, his advice for life sciences entrepreneurs, and the biggest common trait shared by Jennifer Doudna, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci, and other subjects of his books. I'm GeekWire editor, Todd Bishop. GeekWire's health tech podcast is sponsored by Primera Blue Cross, providing comprehensive health benefits and tailored services to approximately two million people, from individuals to Fortune 100 companies. Learn more about how Primera is innovating in healthcare at Primera.com innovation. Walter Isaacson is a professor of history at Tulane, who was previously CEO of the Aspen Institute chair of CNN and editor of Time. He's the author of biographies of Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, and Albert Einstein, among many others. And his new book coming out on March 9th is The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. Walter Isaacson, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, it's a real pleasure, Todd, to be with you. You write in this new book that Life sciences represent the third great revolution of modern times, following the physics revolution sparked by Einstein's papers on relativity and quantum mechanics, and the information technology revolution created by the microchip, the computer, and the internet. Obviously, those are topics you know well based on the people you've written biographies of, but you say that the life sciences revolution will be more momentous. Why is that? Well, you know, I love the iPhone. I was there for the launch. I think it changed everything
0: there. Wonderful apps on it, you know, and things like Uber, Airbnb, they kind of grow out of that wonderful ecosystem. But compared to editing our genes and destroying, you know, viral attacks like we've had recently by using these tools like programmable molecules and using guide RNAs to edit our genes or messenger RNAs to tell our bodies what protein to build, man, that's in a different league. And so I think. The next few decades are going to be the era of biotech, and uh, we'll be able to do totally amazing things that uh, will not only make us healthier, but in some ways will transform our species. So,
1: as much as I love the digital revolution, I think this is the big one. It's clear that you were wrestling throughout this book with the ethical implications, the slippery slope, and. I want to get into the science of gene editing a little bit later on because you explain that just beautifully in the book in a way that's accessible to the general reader. But I'm really curious. It seemed like you were wrestling with this question of how far we go with genetic editing all the way through the epilogue. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can read the science
0: fiction, whether it's Brave New World or Gattaca, the question of creating a genetically enhanced species. And editing our children is something you got to wrestle with. And in my book, Jennifer Doudna, who, you know, wins a Nobel prize with Emmanuel Sharp and J for coming up with the CRISPR, the way to use CRISPR as a gene editing technology. At one point she has a nightmare and she tells me about it. She says, you know, I went into a room and a person wanted to learn about this technology and the person looked up and it was Hitler. And mm. she said, you know, I couldn't sleep for weeks after that. And she starts convening scientists from around the world to say, all right, let's wrestle with this. What are going to be the moral limits to it? Now, at first, I kind of flinched at the notion of genetic editing. Uh, You know, it just feels like, okay, it's playing God, or it's like Prometheus snatching fire from the gods. And so I thought, well, maybe we should use it for very specific diseases. Like it's already been used to cure. Sickle cell anemia, and we could use it against Huntington's or Tay Sachs or cystic fibrosis, and likewise, you know, we could use it for to make ourselves a little bit less susceptible to certain things, like maybe memory loss. But after this coronavirus pandemic, and after talking to people like George Church and others, I became a little bit more open, and I think Jennifer Doudna became a little bit more open to saying, actually, if we're safe. If we really make sure we guard against the unintended consequences, we can go hand in hand, step by step along this road. And that way slopes become less slippery if you do it cautiously, step by step. And I think we can do things that would be very important uh, for our health and for that matter uh, for children that would be able to avoid genetic diseases and perhaps uh, be healthier when it comes to fighting off viruses
1: in the book. And as you did just now, though, you, you list off the things that are beneficial to humans eradicating disease. And then you get into things like, well, what if everybody was just engineered to be a little taller? <laughs> it, 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 you go through those things. Where do you draw the line? Right. And there's certain lines to draw. And
0: that's what we do in the book. it's go step by step and say, okay, let's do some case studies here. What about You know, preventing Alzheimer's or preventing sickle cell anemia. And then, well, what about uh, increasing muscle mass? That's pretty easy. You know, myostatin regulation. You know, what if we wanted to make our kids stronger? And then what about making our kids taller? Well, that sounds good. I think a lot of people have secretly, they went into a clinic and were given a, you know, a genetic supermarket shopping list. They say, I want my kid to be a little bit taller. But that doesn't really advantage the human race. And just and if everybody got six inches taller, the only people who could be advantaged are you know carpenters who have to raise door jams or something. but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a true advantage. So one line you draw is, it really ought to benefit all of society before we allow the editing. Another line I think you draw is that it's pretty easy to do genetic editing. In a living patient like Victoria Gray down in Mississippi has sickle cell. And last year, you know, her stem cells were edited and now she's cured of sickle cell. You know, I'm fine with that. I think that's great. But the doctor in China, you may have read about in 2018, he did it with early stage embryos and that's called germline editing, which means it's inherited. So not only are the babies, the twin babies uh, that were born from those embryos, They have the genetic uh, changes that he made, but all of their children and all of their descendants will. And to me, that's a line, maybe we'll want to cross it, but certainly before we do, we should pause at it, which is, let's draw a line before we make inheritable edits. That way, uh, if we make a mistake, it can be bad for the patient, but it's not going to be bad for the species. And another line I'd draw is a very blurry one, but it's between what I would call enhancement versus just treatment. And if you want to treat somebody with a disease, if you want to prevent them from having Alzheimer's or sickle cell anemia or something like that, I think that's understandable. But if you want to enhance a human, if you want to enhance your children who are going to be perfectly healthy and typical in all other respects... And you say, yeah, but I want them to be taller or stronger. or I want them to have a different hair color, or eye color. I want to maybe enhance their memory capabilities and neurons or enhance their processing power. I think enhancements is a is another line we should be wary about crossing. But that's going to be a, few, you know, a couple of decades from now. So I don't think, you know, sometimes people flinch at everything, you know, GMOs, whatever it may be. I think we have to before we get all worked up about how bad it could be in a couple of decades of people are enhancing their kids, let's try to cure some kids who are really, really suffering badly, and let's try to take some of these uh, you know, fights we're having against viruses and cancers and say, like any species on this planet, we're going to use the
1: weapons we can come up with to fight things like viruses, bacteria, and cancers. Next up, the remarkable life story of Jennifer Doudna, and coming up later, the role of regional biotech hubs, plus Walter Isaacson's advice for life sciences and health tech entrepreneurs. This season of the GeekWire Health Tech
2: Podcast is presented by Primera Blue Cross. At Primera, we talk about what we do all day. We offer access to healthcare. care. The card in the pocket allows people to go get access to health care. Dr. John Espinola is Executive Vice President of Healthcare Services for Primera Blue Cross. The challenge we have is that we know that the healthcare that they get access to doesn't work as well as it could. So we have a duty at Primera to make healthcare work better. That's our job. We give people access to healthcare, yet we give them access to something that's subpar. We have a moral and fiduciary obligation to do better. We're going to do it in partnership with those who may touch the moment of care, providers, innovators, entrepreneurs, all of these are going to help us move in the direction we need to to make healthcare work better. We're bold enough to take the risk to try to do something that'll make a difference and learn from it and be better along the way. To find out more, visit
1: Primera.com slash innovation. Let's return now to our conversation with Walter Isaacson, author of the new book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and The Future of the Human Race. Your book tells the story of many researchers, but biochemist Jennifer Doudna is the central character. What made you decide to focus on her? You know, I wanted to do a book on the new uh,
0: biorevolution we were entering, and I wanted somebody who also was good at wrestling with when should we use it, the policy questions, and all those things. And years ago, I met Jennifer Doudna, I interviewed her for various things, and I realized that her life story is a perfect narrative thread. You know, she grew up in Hawaii, was in sixth grade, but her dad left a copy of Jim Watson's The Double Helix on her bed. And she thought it looked like a detective story. And so she saved it for a rainy Saturday. And indeed, it was a detective story. It was a, a journey of discovery into the most important secrets of life. And she became mesmerized with this idea that molecules can tell you how life works, why the sleeping grass in Hawaii that she loves, you know, curl when you touch it, you know, why the spirals of seashells are the way they are. And she also noticed in the book this wonderful character that Jim Watson calls Rosie, a bit of a demeaning characteristic for Rosalind Franklin, the great crystallographer who does the images that help Watson and Crick discover the structure of DNA. And uh, Jennifer Doudna said, "I I didn't notice that she was treated condescendingly. What I noticed was that a woman could be a scientist. So she tells her guidance counselor, she wants to grow up and be a scientist. And this is in a small town in Hawaii, Ilo, Hawaii, and her guidance counselor says, no, no, girls don't become scientists. Well, I like people who are stubborn and persistent, and that made her, of course, become a scientist. And having become a scientist, while everybody else is focusing on DNA in the 1990s with the Human Genome Project, She, like she tells me when she plays soccer, she likes to play the position other people aren't playing. Uh, She decides to focus on RNA, which turns out, as you know, to be a far more interesting molecule. It actually does something, whereas DNA sits in our nucleus and curates our genetic information. You know, the RNA goes out as in its messenger role and builds proteins in the outer region of our cell, or it, you know, can serve as a guide for enzymes that can chop things up. And she discovers the structure of some RNAs and shows how that makes them the molecule that probably was the beginning of life on this planet, because it could replicate itself. So on and on and on. And then a friend tells her about CRISPR, which is an RNA system. And she's the one who makes the Nobel Prize winning discovery with her research partner, Emmanuel Charpentier, of how to turn this a system bacteria used to fight viruses called CRISPR into a tool where we can edit our own genes. And then, as I said, she takes on the policy issues. So through the narrative of her life, and as she meets with or competes with people like the wonderful George Church or the really charming Fong Zhang, or partners with Emmanuel Charpentier and Jillian Banfield, you can bring this colorful cast of characters together but you know me, I'm a biographer. I like to do it through narrative and to do it through a person.
1: I have to tell you that as the father of a 10-year-old girl, 10-year-old daughter, the story of her dad leaving that book on her bed is really touching. I, every time I've, I've read it or, or heard you mention it, uh, it really strikes me. What could parents learn from that?
0: Well, you know, Todd, one thing I hope you'll learn, this sounds really self-promoting, uh, is you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. They're not too young. They haven't outgrown their wonder years. Leave a copy of The Double Helix on a bed one day. And maybe, you know, forgive me for saying it, if she likes it, <laughs> leave a copy of The Codebreaker. I only <laughs> hope that parents, if they like this book, will say, all right, instead of fretting about teaching my kid to learn Python and JavaScript and do digital coding... I'm going to make them learn that, but I also want to inspire them to do the code of life. And so maybe for a kid, leave on the bed, whether it be the code breaker or the double helix or something, something that'll inspire them to become more interested in science because there's a joy in understanding how something works, especially when that something is ourselves.
1: And as you say, this is the third great revolution and likely the most momentous.
0: Yeah, you know, your, your 10-year-old is going to grow up in this revolution. She's going to have to answer these questions that are asked at the end of the book. She's the ones with her friends and colleagues are going to have to say, what can we do with this technology that's safe? And so instead of raising a generation of people who are anti-science or anti-vax or who fear certain things... It's good to say, you know, heroes don't always wear capes. They sometimes wear white lab coats.
1: Mm. Of course, you dedicated this entire book to giving a full understanding of gene editing and the implications, the people behind it. But in short, if I could offer my Cliff's Notes version, scientists looked at the way bacteria defend themselves and create immunity. And then they use that to figure out how to unravel and splice the twin strands of DNA precisely in a way that new genes could be inserted. And of course, DNA is the genetic code that makes us who we are. So effectively, this creates the potential for human engineering. Tell me if I got that right. And then tell me what was the most amazing thing that you learned that just blew you away about this in your interviews and research?
0: Well, wow, Todd, that's the best explanation I've heard. I'm going to have to try to memorize that one when people say what it's about. (laughs) Because yeah, it's not that complicated of a system. I mean, bacteria, they've been doing it for a billion years and they're not that much smarter than we are. And what they do is they take a little snapshot, a mugshot of any virus that's attacked them in the past and they have these clustered, repeated inserts in their DNA, known as CRISPRs, in which they keep a record of viruses that have attacked. And as you said, if they attack again, uh, the bacteria use this CRISPR system to chop up the attacking virus. And what Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier and, and others did was they discovered, how do we repurpose that so we can cut our own DNA at a targeted spot and change our genes? You know, I think the most uh, amazing and perhaps exciting thing I discovered and maybe slightly frightening, is after a couple of years of you know reporting on this, I said, well, I want to be in the club. I want to do it myself. Hmm. Now we used to have a phrase here in New Orleans, Discimus agenda, which means learn to do by doing. And hmm. so I went to Jennifer's lab and a couple of graduate students took me under wing and I said, you know, worked at the bench with them. And within two days, I've edited a bacteria, and then on the second day, edited human cells, the DNA of human cells. I can make human cells with a reporter molecule that would glow because I had been able to edit it. And so CRISPR is not that hard. Bacteria can do it. I can do it. And that was somewhat amazing, a little frightening too. Uh, we took what I did and mixed it with chlorine and washed it down a drain so I didn't unleash some new molecules into the earth. But uh, I was surprised that, you know, when I wrote about Einstein, trust me, I, I still can't make an atom bomb in my basement. But when I write about this, I realize this is a fascinating and somewhat simple
1: technology. A lot of the people who listen to our podcasts are either in tech or life sciences. And they're looking for new opportunities themselves, either commercially or perhaps uh, philanthropically in a nonprofit way to, to make advances. What would you point them toward if you could, based on what you learned in terms of the opportunities for startups, whether they be nonprofit or commercial, where would you point people to in terms of opportunity? There are two places. Bacteria
0: use CRISPR as a detection technology. It can find any piece of genetic material, any virus that comes into it. Well, this coronavirus pandemic has showed us that we really need good detection technology. We need not to go to the doctor and have a COVID test, whatever. We need something on our kitchen counter, just a little device. Uh, like a home pregnancy test would be where you, you know, spit into a a little vial or a cartridge and you put it through the machine and you say, what viruses do I have? Do I have strep throat? Do I have coronavirus? Uh, Give me my gut microbiome, you know, the bacteria there. Tell me if there's any tumors and uh, I've had my, you know, some tests and there's this particular tumor I'm worried about. Tell me uh, if the genetic code of that is uh, detected uh, in my body, and that will bring home biology the same way personal computers or the iPhone brought home digital technology. I mean, you know, we all feel comfortable with microchips and you know what digital technology can do because we all have computers in our bedrooms, in our desks, whatever, and we all have iPhones in our pockets or phones in our pockets, and so those things became devices form factors on which other people could build apps and so it brought the digital revolution home so if you do that with a biodetection kit using crispr which can detect any genetic sequence that's going to bring biology home and it will be the form factor upon which entrepreneurs can build things just like they can build apps you know for the uh, for a smartphone you know, who knew? I didn't know how amazing Uber would be, but it happens because you have a platform to build it on. Likewise, people will be building all sorts of things on these home testing kits. The second thing, and I'll do this one shorter, is I think we can use it in the war against cancer. That's going to be the next big one. Uh, immunotherapy, stem cells, everything else. Once we have easy editing tools and detection tools I think the fight against cancer will become so much more personalized that, uh, you know, we've always been in this war against cancer and we keep saying there are turning points and there aren't. Well, this is going to be a big uh, inflection point. If I were an entrepreneur, I would find ways to use biotech for home testing kits and for the war against
1: cancer. Hmm. At the risk of turning something profound like reinventing humans and Curing disease into something parochial, I do want to ask you. We do focus a lot on the Pacific Northwest and Seattle at GeekWire. So I'm curious do you see regional hubs emerging in this new era? Boston, San Francisco, San Diego, Seattle? Does it matter as much anymore?
0: In this new era, you're not going to be able to do as much in a garage or in a garret or a dorm room. You're not going to be able to invent Facebook or Apple or Google, you know, in a borrowed garage. Uh, you're going to need the infrastructure that a research, you know, facility or university can have. A uh, University of Washington in Seattle is, you know, among the top five in leading things, but and, and all sorts of things: brain science, uh, genetic engineering, CRISPR technology, uh, and so the University of Washington and Seattle will be. I mean, you know, I I think Seattle is incredibly well positioned because it will be at the intersection of the digital revolution, you know, with everybody from, you know, Amazon to Microsoft there, wonderful engineers there who understand digital technology, and then a great research university and other places that are doing biotech. So uh, I think if you're looking for the regional hub, you need a couple of things. You need a great research university and you need some entrepreneurial creative skills. People who stand at the intersection, like Steve Jobs used to talk about, uh, of the arts and the sciences, stand at that intersection of humanities and the technology. So I would put Seattle foremost up there, along with probably Austin, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, all places with great hospitals and research. I love it here in Tulane. We got a wonderful medical school, a wonderful research uh, university and a School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, along with a very creative community. We don't have as good of a um, community of digital engineers as we need, but I'm hoping New Orleans will be an entrepreneurial city. And um, the big one, of course, is Boston, which has more research hospitals uh, and centers uh, per square inch and per capita than any other place, I think, on the planet.
1: And that's why Kendall Square is becoming the new Silicon Valley. Also, you've got Gates Foundation and uh, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, and so that that kind of plays oh, into the mix yeah. as well. But you mentioned Amazon, and you know they're getting into healthcare. I know you wrote an introduction to uh, the book Invent and Wander that was essentially a small biography of Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. Could you envision Amazon going so far into health that they start to get into biotech? Am, am I thinking too big?
0: Oh yeah, they're going to get into biotech, as they're going to get into you know medicines and drugs and things, but also they're going to be platforms. You know, they've created a lot of what well, you know. I think platforms are the in some ways the secret to great entrepreneurship. The iPhone wasn't just a phone, or wasn't just a smart device; it was a platform for other people to build on. Likewise, Amazon Echo. I've got maybe three or four of them, and I also have Google Home. I must say, but people build all sorts of apps I would never have thought of on that. Amazon Web Services, a totally different thing, but it's a platform that allows entrepreneurs to build. And Amazon the store, Amazon, that too is a platform. If you make something really cool, you know, you have a distribution for it. So that mindset of enabling others to build on your platform, that's crucial in this biotech revolution. And uh, as you say, uh, a new player in these games of the foundations, Chan Zuckerberg Foundation down in California. But obviously the Gates Foundation has done so much to apply uh, messenger RNA technology and CRISPR uh, to problems like coronavirus.
1: You have such an interesting perspective on these revolutions, as you describe them, through the people who drove them. I'm curious, what are the common traits between... Jennifer Doudna, and people who you've written about, Einstein, Jobs, Leonardo? Well, the biggest common trait is curiosity. And by the way, you pick up Invent
0: and Wander in the sort of mini biography I did at the intro of that. That's Jeff Bezos's uh, uh, trait too, which is, you know, Leonardo da Vinci used to just wander around and wonder, why does the water uh, spin into spirals when it flows past a rock? Or why is the sky blue? And when I saw that I said, well, that's cool, because Einstein had in his his notebook, Why is the Sky Blue? And you and I wondered about, like, you know, we used to look at rocks and streams and blue skies. And then we outgrew our wonder years after enough grown-ups said, you know, quit asking so many questions. (laughs) But if you don't outgrow your wonder years, you're going to be more creative. And this is Jennifer Doudna. In my book, she said, you know, not only reading The Double Helix when she's in middle school, but before that... She's going diving for little shells and trying to figure out how the spirals work. Or she loves sleeping grass, which in Hawaii is one of those plants where if you touch it, it curls up. I remember seeing plants that uh, you know moved or whatever when you touch them. And I was fascinated for a while. And then, you know, something else comes along, you see, whatever, a dead squirrel, and it's like you forget all about, you know, the Venus flytrap or whatever you've touched. But Jennifer kept being curious, like, well, there's got to be something inside that makes this happen. And when you get curious, you
1: look for the secrets of life, and life becomes a
0: detective story for
1: you. One of the key themes that comes out from the book is the importance of basic research, What did you learn about that through this process? You know, the people who discovered CRISPR originally were just doing it out of curiosity, to get
0: back to my previous answer. And basic research is just a fancy word for curiosity. Mm. It's a word that means you're looking for something, not because you're trying to find some use for it or some application, and you're not driven by making a product. You're driven Your curiosity. And so you have a graduate student in my book from Altianti, Spain, on the Mediterranean coast. And he's looking at uh, microorganisms that grow up in salt ponds, like bacteria and archaea, in strange environments. And they have these clustered, repeated sequences in their DNA. And he's curious, why is that happening? And so for years, he's studying it. And after a while, he realizes, hey, these bacteria are resistant to the viruses that attack them, uh, whose sequences are within these CRISPRs. So that curiosity leads to a discovery. And then Jennifer Doudna, out of pure curiosity, is saying, okay, what are the components of this CRISPR system? And it's a guide RNA, and it's an enzyme and known as Cas9 in most cases, and uh, just two or three components, that's all you need. And it's only then that it dawns on Jennifer Dowden and her team, almost like an aha moment, that, oh, this could be useful. We could find a practical use for this. So, what I mean by basic research leading to practical uses is sometimes you just got to follow your curiosity. There was a wonderful guy named Vannevar Bush who ran American science during the war, the Manhattan Project and other things. And he wrote a paper that ended up for President Truman with a great title, very American title, Science, the Endless Frontier. Mm -hmm. And he talked about what he called the linear model, which is basic research leading to discoveries, leading to practical applications, leading to commercial uses of it. Now, the linear model is far too simplistic. It's more iterative. Even in the history of CRISPR, you have some very practical people, like two guys, scientists at a yogurt-making company, Danisco, trying to protect the bacteria culture of yogurt. And so they're in the scrum, too, as they try to figure things out for a practical reason. But basically, that model works, which is we have to worship basic curiosity for its own sake, leading to basic research. And
1: that becomes a seed corn for a country that'll make the best inventions. Walter Isaacson, what would be the key takeaway that you would want people to leave this book with? If not information, then action. What would you want them to walk away from this book with? Well, first of all, that nature is beautiful. If you're really
0: curious about weird little things in nature, like how bacteria fight viruses, suddenly you find, well, maybe that's useful as well. And that's why I always think nature's beautiful. It's giving us clues. And secondly, I wanted this book not to just be one of those how-to books or whatever, but it is a book about creativity. How does creativity happen? You know, who wins at it? What role does competition play? Uh, And so it's that, and it's also It only works if you go on a journey of discovery. When I was a kid, I read the double helix, and my dad gave it to me too. I wish I'd become a biochemist (laughs) after doing it. But I read another book most people haven't, but probably ought to go back. It's forty years old by now, Taurus Freeland Judson's called The Eighth Day of Creation. And it's about how you go on this journey of discovery about biology that begins, or at least in modern times it begins with Darwin looking at the beaks of finches and Gregor Mendel looking at the properties of peas uh, that he's bred in the garden of his monastery. And step by step, we as a species discover the secret of how we work. And now that secret has given us an amazing tool, which is not only the ability to understand the code of life, but with a little bit of caution, I hope a lot of wisdom, We write
1: the code of life when we need to. Walter Isaacson, thank you very much for speaking with us. Hey, Todd, you know, you've got a great
0: podcast, and I really am flattered to be on.
1: Walter Isaacson is a professor of history at Tulane and the author of the new book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and The Future of the Human Race. Thank you for listening to the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast app or tell a friend or a colleague about the show. You can see more episodes at geekwire.com healthtech and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thanks to our sponsor of health tech season five, Primera Blue Cross. You can find out more about their work at primera.com innovation. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our podcast newsletter to hear all of our shows. Editing and production support on this episode from Kurt Milton. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop. We'll be back soon with a new episode of GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast.